Exodus 25, verses 1 through 11. The throne of law. Exodus 25, 1 through 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, he shall take my offering. And this is the offering which he shall take of them, gold and silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red and badger skins and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And they shall overlay it with pure gold within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. In Exodus chapters 25 through 31, and again in chapters 35 through 39, we have the law given and the directions concerning the building of the tabernacle. Now, tabernacle literally means tent. It was the tent of meeting the sanctuary, these are various terms given to it. It is emphasized as of central importance in the law. And we have indeed a great many chapters given to it, a dozen or so chapters. It is important in biblical law for reasons that we tend to neglect. And nowadays, generally, either we are subjected to fanciful interpretations of the significance of the tabernacle, or it is entirely passed over. Now, as we analyze the meaning of the tabernacle, we must see, first of all, that the pattern of the tabernacle was given by God. In other words, the blueprint, the directions, the materials to be used were all prescribed by God. And what we read in these many chapters in Exodus given over to the construction of the tabernacle are precisely the blueprints which specify the design and the materials. It is given by God 
It is entirely his work. Man contributes nothing to it except the materials and the labor which he provides. Second, we cannot understand the significance of the tabernacle unless we see that it is the palace of the king. The palace of the king. The king is God, king of Israel. The tabernacle, because it was a large and a very ornate tent, required a considerable amount of work for the assembly and the disassembly and the carrying thereof. At that time, because they were in the wilderness journey, God dwelt among them even as they did in a tent. His tent was the royal tent. When they were finally settled, King David desired to build God a permanent palace. Temple literally means house of God or palace of God. But God, while giving the pattern and the materials to David, specified that it was his son, a man of peace, who was to erect it. We are repeatedly told in the New Testament that this was to be by pattern. The house of God was of God's design. It was his palace. Now, the fact that the tabernacle was the palace of God is not a new fact, although unfortunately it is a relatively unknown one in our day. Not too many years ago, this was still the standard statement, as we read, for example, in Voss's um, biblical theology. If you go back to the last century, Fairbairn at great length, deals with the tabernacle as God's palace and the temple then later as the permanent palace of God. But in the past generation or two, we have had the ecclesiastical approach applied to the Bible. That is the churchly approach, reducing religion to the church. But the reduction of religion to the church is a modern heresy because religion, as the Bible declares it, speaks concerning every area of life, concerning church, state, school, work, agriculture, war, peace, the home and family, everything. It is total. And the reduction of religion to worship and the church is therefore a modern heresy. The tabernacle was the palace of God the King, from whence he ruled the nation absolutely. 
Israel was to present itself at the palace not only to worship but to be commanded. This leads us, therefore, to a third point. The first, the pattern of the palace is given entirely by God. Second, the tabernacle is the palace of the king. Third, hence there was only one sanctuary, one God, one throne, one realm, one law. There was only one tabernacle in Israel because there was one God. And hence it was that it was strictly forbidden for them to establish any other sanctuary. To do so was to have other gods. It was polytheism. Now the fact that the tabernacle was not the place of worship primarily is obvious from the fact that only thrice yearly was attendance required. And then only the males of Israel, the heads of households. Now obviously it was not primarily a place of worship, because this would be to limit worship to three times a year and for the men only who are the heads of households. The three feasts for which they were to go up are called holy convocations, but the word holy does not limit itself to worship. In fact, the primary reference of the word holy is to God. Holiness refers, therefore, primarily to God in all his ways and in all his dealings. The secondary meaning of holy is all things done in the Lord's name and to his glory and according to his word. Holiness, therefore, is not equivalent to worship. A home, a family, that is fully dedicated to God is holy in all its operations. But all its operations are not worship. Worship, therefore, was not the primary function of the tabernacle. The place of worship in the Old Testament was in the home. The father functioned as the priest. It was his jurisdiction to lead the family week by week in worship on the Sabbath. This may come as a surprise to you, but this was not too remote a thing to America, in that there are many people still living for whom this was the routine pattern. 
example, throughout the West, in ranching country in most of Texas, churches were many, many miles away. And until the advent of the automobile, people did not get to church. It was something that was rarely done. But they still had regular weekly worship in the home conducted by the Father. This was routine and normal. So it was in the Old Testament. Worship was local. It was essentially and basically in the home. There was only one tabernacle, and it was the palace of the king. It was not the worship center. For this means, therefore, that the tabernacle or the temple had or have no counterpart in the church. We cannot see the church as a continuation of the temple or the tabernacle. There is no comparison between the two. With the death of Christ, the work of the tabernacle or temple and earthly palace of God was ended. The veil of the temple was rent in twain. The new temple was Jesus Christ who declared himself to be the true temple of God. He ascended into heaven. And Hebrews declares that there is the true sanctuary and the true throne. The earthly sanctuary was the temple or palace of God among his people, his covenant people. But now that palace is in heaven. The throne is there. It is true that believers are spoken of as temples of the Holy Ghost. And the church is spoken of, that is, all believers everywhere, as a spiritual body as the temple or house of God. But this is in a secondary sense. Hebrews makes it clear the true temple, the true sanctuary is now in heaven. And hence it is that Jesus Christ commanded his disciples declaring all power, all authority, all kingship, in other words, in heaven and in earth is now mine, given unto me. Go ye therefore unto all nations and make disciples of them. The command was therefore given for imperialism. Christ as king commands his disciples to go out and command the earth to bring it under godly law and order to go forth 
and convert men and nations to the true King, Jesus Christ. The throne is in heaven, and all the world is summoned into the kingdom by the Great Commission. Fifth and finally, as we analyze the tabernacle, we understand the significance of God's throne. The throne is the ark. And extensive directions are given for the construction of the ark of wood overlaid with gold. But the ark is an unusual throne. It is not primarily a chair. Now, throne is a chair. But the ark is primarily a chest, a repository. And a repository of what? The two tables of the law. The ark sat in the Holy of Holies, the inner chamber of the tabernacle and the temple. The most holy place. The throne room of God. The ark as the repository of the law set forth the fact that the throne of God is his law. This, then, is a most significant fact. God did not make the altar his throne. The altar was in the outer chamber. The altar set forth the fact of atonement, of salvation through the blood of the Lamb. The altar standing in the middle and behind it the door was as it were the door to God. But it was not his throne. So it was that Jesus the King declared, I am the door. By my act of atonement, I am the door, even as I am the priest and the sacrifice and also the King. But entrance to the throne room was only past the door, the altar. Thus, however basic atonement is, it is not the heart of God's rule. It is not his throne. The altar is the door to his kingdom. The law is the heart of it. And therefore Hebrews declares concerning Christ that the cry of his being was as he came into this world. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He himself was the lawkeeper in perfection. And having ascended into heaven, 
reigns from the throne of law. Hence it is that the tabernacle and its construction are so important to a study of the law. Hence it is that so much of modern evangelicalism is guilty of serious heresy in that it speaks at great length on the typology of the tabernacle and of the ark and never mentions that it is a palace and that the ark is a throne and that the throne of God is his law. This is not changed. God's throne is here set forth symbolically. Christ from heaven rules and his throne today as always, for he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is his law. Hence it is that the study of the law is of such great importance. The tabernacle thus has central significance to biblical law, for it declares to us that the throne of law governs the world. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank thee for thy word. And we thank thee that the world is under thy law, that thy kingdom is of law, that the men and nations of our day who despise thy law and seek to make it null and void shall feel the judgment of thy law. Our Lord and our God, in terms of thy word, we stand and wait for thy judgment. Prepare us, O Lord, to rebuild in terms of thy law. Make us strong in the day of adversity, that we may be more than conquerors through him that loved us, even Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Are there any questions now? Yes. Yes. Well, of course, the throne here is given symbolically. The tabernacling presence of God, the Holy Spirit, was in part in the holy place, but there was no physical, material body sitting on the throne. Now, what this throne, the tabernacle, sets forth is, not that there is a literal throne in heaven, but that God's 
throne is his law, so that this literal picture of somebody on a well, of course, uh, we cannot think of God in terms of man. The Greek religions, because they were anthropocentric, that is humanistic, humanistic, had literally material, bodily gods and goddesses and so on. And this has infected the Western mind to a great deal. But God is the absolute Lord of the universe, of spirit, is beyond our imagination. Therefore, for the mind of man fully to grasp what God is and what he is doing moment by moment other than the total government of the world is beyond the mind of man. Now, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, through his incarnation, has declared him, has exegeted, explained him. He is a perfect revelation of God. But he is not a total, absolute revelation. He is a true revelation. In other words, God can never be totally comprehensible. He is incomprehensible. It would take a mind equal to God's to comprehend God, so that always God is beyond our comprehension and Christ is beyond our comprehension. We can know him truly, but we cannot know him totally. Never. This is humanism, the idea that man's destiny is to become a god. Yes. Yes. We were created in the image of God, and then various verses throughout the Bible make it clear to us what the image of God is. Knowledge, righteousness, holiness and dominion. This is what constitutes our image of God. Yes. No one Yes, no one in this life can follow Christ perfectly. There is no such thing in this world as perfect sanctification. Only Christ was the perfect man. But this does not mean we cannot follow him truly, and we cannot be pleasing to him. Now, our children are far from perfect. But that does not mean they cannot be pleasing to us. We can be very happy with our children, delighted in them, and yet know that they have many, many frailties and shortcomings. 
But as long as their direction is godly, is obedient, they are a delight. So that in this life, indeed, while there is no perfect obedience, this does not mean there are no Christians. This does not mean we are not pleasing to Christ. Yes. If God what? Yes. good point. Both uh, the first five and the second five commandments were on one table, as it were. Perhaps one on one side, the other on the other. So that instead of five being on one and five on the other, the two had all ten and were duplicate copies of each other. It was the treaty with God. One was God's copy and the other was Israel's copy. Both were placed in the ark. Now, it has become a convention to speak of the first five as the first table of the law and the second five as the second table. This should not mean that they are two separate uh, tables, but... It is a convention. One, the set, the duty towards one na- one's neighbor, and the other, the duty towards God. Of course, all ten are our duty to God. But the second table are conven- is conventionally spoken of as our duty to our neighbor. We'll deal with that more as we get to it. Yes. Yes, Uh, we'll postpone that until we get to the fifth commandment. There are uh, many who read it as four and six and many as five and five. And we'll analyze that when we get to the uh, fifth commandment. It's a long subject and a very important one, and that's why we cannot get into it now. Another question? Yes. No, they are literal directions for the construction, in order that it might be both an, a throne and a, a repository. 
Last week, someone brought up a question with respect to uh, Gene Dixon. And I was interested in the fact that last Sunday's Santa Ana Register also had her predictions concerning the U.S. election and other events this year. So I'm going to read a portion of uh, her column, which is extremely long. To give you an idea of what utter nonsense it is, as well as blasphemy. And I quote, My mid-year predictions for 1968 leave me in a state of almost utter exhaustion. For as I have written many times, a vision is a revelation, a revelation is a will of God and cannot be changed. At that point, she's anti-Christian. We do not believe in further revelations. That's spiritualism, Mormonism, and a lot of occultism. It is not scriptural. Now, my prediction on President John Kennedy was a revelation. She's equal to Isaiah and Moses and the rest, according to her. My vibrations regarding the assassination of Senator Robert Kennedy did not come to me as a revelation. It was purely a psychic discovery obtained through mental telepathy. It was not God's will that Robert Kennedy die, but the will of humanity. Now here she's getting into the most mixed up philosophy and theology imaginable. Uh, now, some of her predictions. What of Senator Edward Kennedy? Steamroller tactics will be used to get him on the Democratic ticket in either first or second place. If he will resist the pressure from the people around him and leave things to God's timing, he can prolong his life. Well, now, is there any one of us who couldn't have said more than that? Now, to continue, still another de Democrat, ex-Governor George Wallace, founded a third party under the banner of states' rights and law and order. Civil disorder is of paramount importance with the voters, and it is from this that Wallace gains his strength and importance. An amazing prediction, isn't it? Now, the next one. The greatest steamroller attempt will be to put Governor Nelson Rockefeller over. In the final analysis, this will be a test of the power of money. A marvelous prediction, isn't it? If the political situation remained status quo, anyone might predict the outcome. But my vibrations keep telling me to sit tight as more surprises are in store. And I can assure you, there are. Well, then she goes on uh, with a lot of predictions at great length about uh, Mar Mrs. Martin Luther King. She may step into active politics. She may not. I get strong vibrations that Go Governor Rockefeller is involved in plans which will affect and please her. Well... I've read the papers, too, and I got the same vibrations out of the L.A. papers. But uh, now to continue, there are several pages all about the same caliber and a lot, oh, much, much worse. 
But I'll just read three more. Cuba still remains as the Russian beachhead for Latin America. But Castro's days are numbered, and he will pass from the scene. Now, here she comes out and says something. But of course, uh, I've read that in about half a dozen newspaper and magazine stories, that the situation is bad there. So, there are missiles in Cuba stored under schoolhouses. They have been placed there so that no U.S. attempt will be made to destroy them. Again, not a prophecy. It's uh, expressions of opinion that have often been made. But this I really enjoy. A sound economy will continue. But I am getting stronger vibrations that our dollar will be devalued. Well, as I say, those are vibrations which you can get better by reading responsible newspapers. Uh, then, of course, she has a horoscope at great length for Virgo and Aries and Taurus and Gemini and Cancer and Leo and so on, Aquarius, Capricorn. Pure astrology. Now, how anyone can call her a Christian, I don't know, unless they don't know what a Christian means. But this is Jean Dixon, Dixon and her prophecies, and no doubt she will be telling you that she forecast the election this fall. This should be enough to tell you that she is a fraud. Anyone who claims to be a Christian and goes in for astrology... Anyone who makes vague predictions like this and declares she is a seeress getting revelations from God, well, I wouldn't put much stock in what they have to say. Yes, I think your hand was up first. Witchcraft deals, of course, with magic and with occultism and is deliberately and totally anti-Christian. Christians should have no part of it, definitely. Yes. It's not quite accurate, but our Lord made that statement in the Garden of Gethsemane to the disciples. Yes. All right. I'll give you the reference afterwards. Yes. Yes. Very good point. I had forgotten that, but I did see it. Harry Schultz, in his financial newsletter, gives Gene Dixon's name as one of his subscribers, so you can see where she gets some of her uh, prophecies. Along the same lines, someone gave me uh, this week 
the July 9 Indicator Digest, which is uh, a survey of stock market business and monetary indicators, and stockbrokers are the primary subscribers to it. But I like the uh, front page story. U.S. Treasury now in delicatessen business, building up impressive stockpile of pure baloney. Yes. Who gave it what? Oh, yes. There is more here than uh, meets the eye. And there is no question that some of these people do have... Uh, very unhealthy and dangerous powers. I know that uh, having been on an Indian reservation and having seen some of the medicine men in operation, there is no question there are things there that we cannot account for. But there is no question in my mind of the very fearful effect it has upon the people. Because while these people were of superior intelligence, these uh, uh, medicine man. It had a totally destructive effect, a disintegrating effect on their life. So they were at the bottom of the scale, morally, financially, in every way. Yes, I didn't see the article, but I've seen things like this. This is nonsense. Already, of course, business firms are having serious problems with computers because a computer is totally uh, dependent on the man who sets it and finds it. Now, what they are finding is this. You hire a computer expert to operate a computer. That machine does exactly what he sets it to do. And they are finding that a lot of these operators are setting it to pay off to them. So that not only is the computer doctoring the books, but it's also destroying the records in many, many cases so that the business comes up with a regular loss and a payoff to the man who's operating it. So there's a major headache. There was a front page story in the Wall Street Journal on the trouble the business firms are having with these doctored computers. And it's a... Almost anything could happen if the person who is running the computer sets it to do so. You see, the computer has no mind. 
It's the mind of the operator. Yes. To go back to predictions, I read one article where it stated that uh, she has predicted the uh, assassination of uh, Robert Kennedy, but it was done in this way. She had luncheon with three people, three prominent people who she named, and in retrospect, she said, yes, I told so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so that uh, Robert Kennedy would be assassinated. And she could meet at lunch with dozens of little groups like that and predict first one and then another was mixed and then rock star and so on, so on. And then in retrospect, she says, oh, yes, I can. Well, I think most of us, with any knowledge of sound economics and of the political scene, can predict far more effectively than Gene Dixon, because we are predicting in terms of a law order. We are predicting in terms of knowledge about reality, and this she doesn't have. But I have no doubt that besides, I'm glad you reminded me of that fact, subscribing to Harry Schultz's uh, financial newsletter, she's taking a lot of political newsletters and so on so that she can make predictions because uh, she is only giving a watered-down version of what is common newspaper reporting. Yes. Yes. Yes, I do believe that very often their powers are demonic. A uh, good deal of the time they're indulging in fraud, and they are masters at fraud. But very often they do have demonic powers. They do do things that are beyond explanation. Uh, and I think it's an area where it's better not to dabble. It's very dangerous, in fact, to dabble. Yes, I think it's interesting... Some years ago, oh, I think about 40, 45 years ago, a liberal scholar, in fact a rather radical one, wrote on something which he felt would characterize perhaps more and more of the world. He said, if Christians believe there is such a thing as grace from above, what about something we can call grace or power from below? And I think we are definitely seeing this sort of thing nowadays. But it's a disintegrating, a destructive thing. There's a very fine book that's been written on that. Unfortunately, it went out of print too soon. It might be available in used form here and there by Kurt Koch. K-O-C-H, Between God and Satan, a German who has specialized for years and years in analyzing everything from 
fortune telling to uh, various magical uh, practices, witchcraft, everything in the field, and has written two or three books uh, in which he does describe the devastating effect upon people. Well, our time is up and we stand adjourned now.